podcast. Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. Quick note to patrons to just get that out of the way right off the bat. More free stuff headed your way this week, and I'll give details at the end of the show. On this show, you'll get to know Danny O'Dwyer a bit. He makes video game documentaries, and we're big fans here at Level of Danny's work. His company is called Noclip, and you can find them pretty much everywhere, but on Patreon, YouTube, Twitch, those kinds of places. Danny's work is fantastic, and he's covered some great games and topics like Rocket League, Frog Fractions, Final Fantasy XIV, the upcoming multi-part series on The Witcher that's coming out very soon. His documentaries are great. Danny also happens to be a patron, so we did a sort of extended version of Patron of the Week right around the middle of the show, and I'll put up a list of those five songs and a playlist of the other music you'll hear in the episode, all on our Patreon page. Here he is. My name is Danny O'Dwyer. I run a crowdfunded video game documentary channel, I guess you could say, or Patreon, depending on where you're coming uh, from it. Um, and we make uh, video game documentaries, essentially. And it's called Noclip, which is an old reference to uh, first-person shooter cheats, which actually quite a lot of our audience don't pick up on. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, yeah, but explain what, explain it then. Yeah, it's uh, essentially back in the day when you were playing like first-person shooters, like for you know Quake and Doom and things like that. Um, you'd have all the console commands to to do different cheats, and most of them were pretty obscure, like IDKFA, IDDQD would like get you all the guns and stuff like that, or God mode. Um, and no clip was essentially what it meant was that you could turn off the clipping, uh, clipping being the thing in video games that stops you know physical objects from basically merging into each other. So if you turn off the clipping, essentially you could just walk through walls. So no clip <laughs> was like a really fun way of seeing the game from the developer's perspective a little bit, uh, and also getting into areas where you weren't necessarily supposed to get into. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought that was a pretty elegant kind of, uh, I don't know, metaphor for what I was trying to do, which was trying to get developers to open up about their games and trying to sort of peek behind the curtain a little bit. Uh, and it was also a reference to 90s video games, and as somebody who grew up playing 90s video games, <laughs> uh, I was kind of into that too. <laughs> sure, sure. So... Uh, before that, you worked for GameSpot, and I always loved that site. Mm. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the work that you did there, and then uh, we'll we'll talk about some more specifics about Noclip. Cool. Yeah, I I was a big fan of GameSpot. I kind of grew up. I grew up in the southeast of Ireland, in case the accent. I know it's been dulled a bit, but it's it's still <laughs> there. And whenever you typed video games into Google, two websites came up, and one was GameSpot, and one was IGN. Um, and back then, I was making websites. That was my trade before I got into the, the games press. And even back then, I kind of thought IGN looked like garbage, and I thought GameSpot looked cool. So then GameSpot was my website. <laughs> and essentially, I kind of I don't know. Like over the years of working in uh, radio and working in theater and stuff in my hometown of Waterford, I I got an a, an affinity for games reporting, especially when I went into video. I was kind of like, oh, I could like I'm a terrible writer, but I could like I could probably talk on camera maybe about stuff. Mm-hmm. And it kind of created this like eight year long journey of trying to see if I could maybe get a job at GameSpot, which involved me moving eventually to London and trying to get a job at GameSpot UK and failing a bunch of times. And then right, you know, when I was about to leave the UK after living there for, for two and a half years, um, uh, I got a call from them saying, uh, oh, we, we actually think we might have a position for you. And I was very fortunate to work there for two years. I made enough of a noise, I guess, that they wanted me in America. And 
I literally got to live my dream job, but one that I was sure I wasn't ever going to do and I'd basically given up on. Next thing, I was the face of GameSpot in America and mm. essentially doing the job that I dreamed of doing growing up in, in rural Ireland in the middle of nowhere, basically. Mm. Um, so when I was there, I kind of, I don't know, when you when you get your shot, then I think you kind of do as much as you can to make sure that you you are you earned it, I guess. So, I, I you know I did my job and I did the stuff that most video game websites require you to do, which is to get views and to make content that your your audience enjoys and to play lots of games and do all that stuff. But then on the sides, they also gave me a lot of freedom to sort of create long form features that I thought harkened back to the type of reporting I used to love when I was reading things like PC Gamer, um, like articles that I would go back to six months later, which is something that doesn't really happen in game reporting all that much because it's so mm. based on the newswire. So when I was there, I made some uh, short features on, the first one I did was about depression in games and talked to some uh, people, uh, professionals about that um, and, and players. And then I kind of started doing little developers, uh, little pieces, because previews were kind of garbage back then. No one watched previews. Developer interviews were terrible. Um, and the reason wasn't because developers are bad at talking about games. The reason is because journalists were terrible at interviewing developers. <laughs> <laughs> or, or would just interview PR people, which, like, and that became so trite that nobody was ever interested in it. So I started to ask really specific questions of people. I think I, when I, I hosted the E3 stage show at GameSpot a couple of times and would like really do a lot of research because like I, I get to host the E3. I used to, I tuned in every year to the GameSpot E3 stage every single year. I would like, I used to have summer jobs that I would like go down to a web cafe at lunchtime and like watch them. So when I got my opportunity to actually host those things, I made damn sure that I, you know, knew who I was interviewing and asked the right questions. Mm -hmm. And I think just over the years, I, I don't know, I really like talking to people and I really like talking to people who make games and over the years, that and the sort of my love of video eventually turned into me making sort of short form documentaries about games. Now, because you mentioned briefly that you did some radio work as as well. And, hmm. you know, putting together an audio feature like what we do is so, 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 so different than putting together a video feature. And Sam and I talk about this all the time, uh, just how... You know, and you can even you can even see the difference, right? If someone from radio makes like you know, like um, people from public radio who have made documentaries for Netflix now or something, right? Yes, and you can see a difference in how someone who's worked in audio for most of their life, you know. So, so how did that jump happen to you? Because of course, we want nothing to do with it. <laughs> like we're like <laughs> audio only people, you know. It's like I actually have a massive affinity for audio only because I think there's, I think when you're using video, you can get away with a lot more. I think when you're making audio features, you really have to be on top of your game because you've you've got a captive lar if you if you have a captive audience because a lot of people listen to audio passively, which I guess they kind of do with video a little bit too. But I do feel like you've got less to sort of obfuscate your like the shitty parts of your show. Like if you mess up something, <laughs> yeah. in video you can cut to B roll, which is mm -hmm. like the most amazing tool in the world for editing interviews. So <laughs> I, I actually have a massive affinity for for the the skill involved. I would be terrified to do what you do. Honestly, I would rather edit a forty minute documentary in video because it's like comfortable. Like I, I know that muscle. I can stretch that one. I can, mm. I can run, but I can't swim. Right. Yeah. So. So, so I guess I think I was just like very like I worked in radio beat 102 and 03 and I even say tree there because the Irish accent comes out um, <laughs> in, in the southeast of Ireland uh, and I hosted I was kind of their fill in 
reporter so I would fill in on the morning show uh, there was an Irish music show that I would fill in on sometimes the mainstream show in the afternoon so I was always being thrown into situations where I wasn't really the right fit for it but I kind of was a jack of all trades so mm-hmm. it was a it was a really good learning experience for me and I think the same is learning how to I guess I think they're kind of two different I feel like the interview skill is what I learned from radio the ability to ask a question and then shut up, which is probably not what I'm doing a very good job of now. Whereas the video thing, to make video, it's as much, I think, learning the technical nuts and bolts of it as it is learning the craft. I think there's a lot of, you have to put a lot of hours in. You know, it's that whole thing, once you've done something for like a thousand hours, you're you're pretty good at it. I think yeah. that's very like similar with video, where you just have to get in there and be bad at it for a long time before you can get good at it. Mm-hmm. So I was like young. I was in college when I was in radio, when I was in high school before that when I was in radio, and I was learning how to do video. And during that whole period, I kind of eventually transitioned over. And I think the rise of YouTube and stuff and the fact that video is becoming a more... Uh, or homemade video is becoming a more popular thing. Mm-hmm. I loved it because I was a skater and I loved watching CKY and watching VHS tapes of like, you know, the the latest toy machine, uh, uh, you know, s- sales video or whatever, or any of that stuff. So I was kind of into that already. But then when it beca- started becoming mainstream in that way, and like MTV was essentially a bunch of like people making shows like Jackass and stuff where they were mm-hmm. recording their own thing, it was like, oh, there is a pipeline for like, you know, nobody's like me to make stuff in video. So I think that's probably why I ended up going in that direction. It was as as much to do with the culture as it was to do with my own sort of skill or affinity for either uh, either medium. Sure, sure. Uh, talk to me a little bit about um, making the transition from, you know, having an office to go to, basically, to kind of going out on your own. Sure. Um, I've always sort of been a sole trader in some respect or a bit of a loner in terms of my creative work. When I Before I worked for GameSpot, I ran my own video game website and I did it with a bunch of friends and, and I really liked it and that's what I did on my, my own time. Um, and before I worked as a web developer, I was in school and college and I was running a web development company in my own time. So I've always kind of had an element of my life that was working from home. But when I left GameSpot, I think the the craziest thing was, first of all, leaving your dream job. Like, it felt totally wrong. It felt like, why are you leaving this thing? And there was a part of me that really wanted to, like, run GameSpot. And there's always going to be a part of me that, like, thinks that I would have loved to have gotten my hands on the video team and made that thing really rad. But that wasn't <laughs> going to happen, ever. The The realities of corporate business mean that, and, and my sort of, uh, the way I work, I don't think ever we're going to probably match up, at least not there. So... When I left him to work on my own, I was kind of comfortable with it. Like, people were freaking out about it and saying, like, will you be okay? And I was like, yeah, like, I, I literally did this for most of my life. Like, the only time I've had a steady job where I didn't have side projects was when I worked at GameSpot, and that was, like, four and a half years. So it felt, like, fine to me. Um, but I will say that the first three or four months of it were, were challenging. Um, living in the Bay Area, uh, I'm moving really soon to the East Coast, to the more rural sort of part of the world. But living here in the Bay Area, I live in Oakland, uh, rent is really expensive and me and my wife basically share like a one-bed apartment. The living room, if you want to call it that, or sitting room, is uh, my office. Like one corner of it is where my PC is and that's where Noclip has run for the past 12 months. And for the first mm. four or five months of it, yeah, like it was hard. I was indoors working, stressing out the whole time. Mm-hmm. I could see my wages on Patreon go up and down every day, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, making this stuff is pretty expensive. So... 
uh, it was hard, and I think I eventually sort of was able to figure out that this was killing me a little bit and started to ease off work a little bit and get my weekends back and make sure I went out and exercised more and did stuff like that. So it was, it was more of a challenge than I was expecting, but creatively, it's been the most exciting time of my life for sure. So who helps you with videos? It's basically myself and a, a guy called Jeremy Jane, who is my camera operator and colorist. Uh, he worked at GameSpot before. He went freelance before I did and went off and made some documentaries on his own. Uh, but yeah, it's essentially just the two of us doing this stuff. Uh, mm. He lives in Berkeley. I live down here. We go off on shoots. We have like a very intense sort of work relationship where we go off and we film for you know a week or two weeks or three days or wherever. We go fly somewhere, do all that stuff, and then we sort of go back to our own constituencies, he colors the work, I start editing it, he sends me the color grade, and then I edit the rest of it. So the whole idea, the way we set it up at the start was to be as cost effective as possible. Like I wear a lot of hats, I present and edit and write and do the voiceover and do all that sort of stuff. And he's a really amazing uh, filmer and colorist and he comes with his own kit. So the two of us essentially do the job of if you did like a corporate video gig, they'd hire like six people to do this. Yeah. <laughs> For, as yeah. much because there's a lot of work as as well, six people want to get paid if it's a corporate job. So they tend to, <laughs> you know, add in, add in as many friends as they can. And I think that's why we're able to do the stuff that we do, or maybe as much stuff as we did in the first year, because the two of us are like, we're, he's similar. He was the type of person who did a lot of stuff on his own freelance. So he, he's got that like, you know, uh, savvy. So I think the two of us make a make a really good team. But when I tell people it's only two people, yeah, they're usually like, like what? And also, mm -hmm. why do you need that much money? And it's like, video is <laughs> more expensive than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> yes, yes, it is definitely. That's one thing that audio has going for it as well is we don't have to have cameras and lights and you know, we don't need any of that. Right. But and these ni nice microphones go a long way though, right? <laughs> yes, they do. Uh, <laughs> So do friends who have nice microphones who let them use, <laughs> <laughs> use them. <laughs> um, and, and forgive me, but can you explain what you mean by colorist? Sure. Uh, so whenever you uh, film something... Uh, due to the sort of the wonderful world of digital video, uh, you've got a lot of control over how that looks once uh, once you get it onto your, your timeline. So he essentially color grades everything we film. So he he takes what's there and and you know messes with light balances and messes with colors and hues and things like that to make it um, as cinematic as possible. In fact, this might interest you. Uh, there's a, an element of control as sort of another layer where you can essentially record something in what's kind of known as um, log, which is a, a a more sort of deep light and color platform that essentially, if you were to look at it, it would look very desaturated, but mm -hmm. essentially it gives you a lot of control over the amount. It's like a more data-rich version of the shot. So mm -hmm. we shoot stuff in that, and it looks like totally unfinished and weird. And essentially, you pull that into whatever um, color grading or video editing software you're using, and then you have way more control over how it looks. Um, and this is one of these tricks that you use to make a $5,000 camera look like a $20,000 camera. Sure. So it's really handy. It's it's quite time intensive work though. So he, you know, he'll he'll spend 2 or 3 days filming and then would we'll spend 2 or 3 days coloring everything to make make sure it looks like super super good. Right. And so forgive me if you explained who does the the cutting up. You do all the cutting up and then send yes. him. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So he, well, he he takes the so when, whenever we're on a shoot, we back up everything a million times in case the plane goes down or mm -hmm. in plane in case uh, mm -hmm. anything breaks. Uh, he goes home with his version. I go home with mine. He basically colors it while I'm editing, and then he sends me a file that essentially changes all the color on my version. Oh, uh, so we cool. Have a, 
yeah, it's a pretty pretty good system because it's all metadata. So he sends me just like a uh, an adjustment layer for our timeline that changes how everything looks in terms of color, but mm-hmm. in terms of the actual edit itself, I'm I'm still good to go. Well, let's talk about some of the videos that you've gotten to do. Uh, sure. I am a huge Rocket League fan, or at least I was. <laughs> I mean, I, I just loved the shit out of that game. So mm. uh, it, it just what a great, uh, that was a two-parter. Yes. And that was your first one, right? Yeah, it was. So um, how did you decide to go with Rocket League first, or is that just how it played out? Rocket League was the one that I wanted to do first. In our in our pitch video for when we launched the Patreon, I'm literally playing Rocket League in the video. <laughs> and that was intentional because I then sent that video to Psyonix and said, hey guys, I know about your story. I read this Gamma Sutra article about how Rocket League stems from Unreal Tournament 99, which is a really one of my favorite first-person shooters ever. Um, I loved Unreal Tournament 2004, which is where Conquest Mode was made, where David Hagwood, who's the, the CEO of Sonics, made that. So I knew about the story from this one Gamma Sutra article, and I thought, this is perfect for video. Like <laughs> that, it, it totally embodies what Noclip was trying to do as well, which is telling stories about contemporary games with this sort of deep history that goes back to the 90s. And then also, like... We could have picked anything, right? So everyone wants to know, what's your first project going to be? Okay, you're going to go make video game documentaries. What is it? We could pick like a bit really big AAA game like Call of Duty and try and do something on them. It'll just look like marketing. We could pick a really indie game, which would be cool, but then that's what people are worried about all the time, that like all independent coverage of games always tends to lean towards indie stuff, especially with documentaries like Indie Game the Movie mm. and whatnot. So I didn't want to typecast us that way either. So Rocket League looked perfect because not only was it this like idea that they had for like a decade to try and get it to work, it was also super grassroots and it was also super popular. And I like this is kind of the like marketing side of it. I really wanted Dash to be the way people thought about Noclip. That I wanted them to think about there was this grassroots thing that was really cool, that was exciting to be part of. Um, so I thought that that was sort of a, a, a good first project to do. It was also close. They're based in San Diego, so the overhead wasn't going to be that much to send us down. Mm-hmm. And it was also a game that I played the hell out of. Like I, I, <laughs> I had done videos on GameSpot about how much I loved it, about how much... I'd stopped playing, like I'm a big football, you know, soccer fan, and I play FIFA and Pro Evolution all the time, and I've literally not played them since Rocket League came out, like basically. So, <laughs> like, I, I was a huge fan as well. So to me, it was the perfect game, and I sent him an email and was like, yo, this is why we need to do this. You guys need to tell your story. We're going to kill it. Let us ha- let it happen. And they were super cool. They got us down like two weeks later, and we had the first stock out, I think five weeks after we launched, we had the, the Rocket League stuff up. It was fun. Yeah. It's a cool game, right? How cool is that game? Oh, that game is the best. And they they just so completely perfected all those physics. That's what was so impressive to me right. when I first played. Because I love driving. And dri- like, mm. if there's driving in a game, it has to be right. And I get really annoyed if driving feels just janky or whatever. Because so many games have gotten it right, you know? And it's like, yeah. okay, we should all get it right now. <laughs> It's it's amazing how like you know they it's just iteration like iter- over years you know weeks and months and years of just tweaky tweaky tweaking and making mm-hmm. different versions of essentially what that car soccer thing is yeah. that eventually they get it down to a science. It's incredible how much work goes into making something just feel right. Yes, it's yes. amazing. And what was the name? What what was the original name of that game? Uh, Supersonic Acrobatic Rocket Powered Battle Cars was the one that came out on PlayStation Three. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, also also marketing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. 
you mentioned right now you're working on some videos for The Witcher. Tell us a little bit about yeah. that because you talked with um, some of the developers uh, during GDC for that. For sure. I, yeah, we interviewed Marcin Iwinski back in uh, at GDC, which was wonderful. And then after that, we basically had a meeting and I was like, yo, dog, your Witcher video game is going to be 10 years old in, in October, which, is, of course, is something they all painfully know about because they were planning their own marketing stuff around it. Mm-hmm. And I'd worked with them before. I'd done a, a, a three-parter preview series on The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt, and I'd flown out to Poland and, and done um, that sort of story, uh, a little bit about uh, the history of Sede Project and, and, and the game as well, which is a fascinating history. That whole story is insane. So mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to go out and do it again and do it properly and then also tell a story about um, not just The Witcher 3, but also 1 and 2. So I'm working at the moment on like a seven-part series. We were out in Poland for about a week and a half. It was our longest wow. Um, shoot for sure. I spent a lot of time in Warsaw. I spent a lot of time interviewing people. We did one on GOG as well, which is um, their you know Steam sort of equivalent, the DRM free uh, marketplace for games. So in okay. all, including the GOG stuff, I think we did twenty one interviews. Oh so wow, really big. So we have a seven part series coming out in uh, like the two three week window, uh, if not the last day of this month, then then the first couple of days of the next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so hopefully we can tell a good story about all that and tell the story of Sede Project again, which is a fascinating story about a post Soviet country where trademark law didn't exist and then uh, a game development or a game publisher uh, starting up there then eventually trying to make their own game it's 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 amazing they're called Sede Project because they used they sold CDs like that's what they did so it's a, it's a really cool story I'm looking forward to it that's the other side of you know once we'd done a couple of indie games and like The Witness and Doom and Spelunky and we went to Japan and did Final Fantasy just having that palette of different stories to tell I think is really important um, and this is a this is a pretty good one so yeah, I mean, so many people want to be games journalists, and and I would imagine that perhaps maybe you could have slid into a more newsy type role. But kind of, uh, what do you love about the storytelling part and and digging into it like that? I feel like the most like fortunate person in in the industry. For a long time, I felt really bitter about not getting in because I think I was <laughs> kind of old for for a lot. I, at least that's what I thought. I, I I used to look at everyone else who was kind of in and think, oh man, they were lucky. They got in when they were like 19 and they were mm-hmm. lucky they got in when they were like 24 or 25 or 28 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now it kind of feels like actually maybe I wasn't going to be good at doing that stuff. Like maybe I needed to have a more mature audience and a more mature brain for myself and a more mature workflow to, to do this stuff the way, the way um, it kind of worked out. I think you just you know, it's the path of least resistance, Emily. Like, I'm not good at writing. I was never going to be a reviewer. I'm really bad. Like, even now, like, anytime I write anything, my, my wife has to proofread it. Like, I'm a, I'm literally a journalist by trade, and I need my w- wife to, like, tell me where, where like, capital letters and comments go. So I'm not, I was never going to be a writer. And the, so the news stuff, I'd done a, I did a little bit of GameSpot, and I did some reviews and things like that, but... I've got an Irish accent, which is really helpful, I think. I think people like listening to it, and it has that weird thing where in America specifically, like, there's a sort of this, you get a lot with English accents probably more, this sort of, you get away with, there's an air of authority around it. And I think with Irish accents and the way we speak and sort of the way we tell stories is very much of a storytelling culture. And I think that is my sort of, what is it like unfair advantage or whatever? That's the one thing that I'm that I'm I have probably 
um, I'm better at in, in, in a way that I'm definitely worse at other things. So I was never going to be a very good traditional journalist. It would have been an uphill struggle for me. So I, I went in the path of least resistance, which for me was just like talking to people. I love talking to people. I like hearing their stories and I like telling my own. And yeah, I just think it was a, a good fit. And I think I was also very fortunate in that this type of work wasn't really available like five, ten years ago. I think as much as the technology has improved, I think the audience has matured a lot. Like there is space for this type of work now. Like your mm -hmm. podcast, like this type of thing is very like the stuff we do isn't mainstream. It's not really meant to be. It's niche, -y and that's what makes it cool. And that's why the audience likes it, because mm -hmm. it's it's very specifically tailored towards a, a type of taste and it's unrelenting in trying to target that. And that's what I love about the modern media landscape is that you have these pockets of stuff that's so particular and then that makes that cool. They don't need to, you know, worry about putting on a television and trying to get ratings against everything else. Like that's not the world we live in anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, at the start, I tried to keep it more broad and then I started doing stuff that was really particular and people kept watching it. Like <laughs> we did like the Final Fantasy 14. I guess that's probably bigger. Maybe the Frog Fractions one. We did one on a mm. web, on a browser game. Yep. And then like, you know, people watched it and it's like, <laughs> we can do it. We can do anything. Like anyone will, and people are into whatever. So... I think that's why I ended up doing that sort of stuff is because I don't, yeah, I don't necessarily think it was some sort of master plan. I, I think it's just like, this is what I was, I had an affinity for and I was lucky enough to be in the industry during a time where I could actually pull it off. What kinds of things are on your wish list? I think for me, like, I'd love to do one on, if I could have the access and once I get better at this, I'd love to do something on, on Half-Life. It's like one of my favorite games ever. It probably is my favorite game ever. Mm -hmm. I'd love to do that. I think I think once I get on the East Coast, because I'm moving to Maryland in, in a couple of weeks, um, that's going to open up a lot of interesting ones. I know Epic are based down in Charlotte. Mm -hmm. And I think, so I'd love to do something on Unreal Tournament. Um, I know there's a lot of people up in the Boston area that I've been keeping away from because I thought I might end up on the East Coast. I thought I was actually going to end up more further, further north up in Providence, but this will still be pretty close. So like all the Irrational Games uh, crew were up there. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of Looking Glass Studios, so Thief, Deus Ex, mm -hmm. Bioshock, that whole thing. I'd love Harmonics. to do one on SWAT 4. Yeah, yeah it, like all that good stuff. Yeah, um, Bethesda, and there's loads yeah. of other stuff, like like more more community-focused things. We, we filmed a very small sort of uh, uh, feature documentary on um, a, a Grand Theft Auto Online crew that are based in Knoxville, Tennessee. So we shot mm. that before we went to uh, Poland. And that was cool. So I'd love to do more community or gamer focused things like that for instance able gamers are based i think in pennsylvania which is not too far from where i'll be as well so i'd love to do something on uh, accessibility and controllers and stuff mm -hmm. like that as well so there's, there's no shortage of of stories um, mm -hmm. it's just picking which one to do is is the hard one yeah no kidding my god well let's talk about some of the games you grew up playing i mean i'm not asking you to pick favorites but if you want to you can <laughs> um my my gaming history always seems quite strange when i i talk to americans because in in europe you were either in the sort of when i was growing up and i was born in 86 so i was playing games in the mid-90s and you were either part of the SNES, like Mega Drive or Genesis uh, crew, or you were part of the like Commodore, Atari, Amiga crew. 
and I had an Amiga. So I had a Commodore Amiga 600, which I grew up playing, which essentially, it looks like a keyboard that you stick discs into. Yeah. And on that, there are lots of ports of games that were way better on the SNES and Mega Drive, like, you know, Street Fighter 2 and Mortal Kombat and all that good stuff. But there was also loads of games which would eventually make it to those consoles that were predominantly made in, in the UK and Europe, which were absolute classics. So games that I loved, like... Uh, Sensible Soccer, uh, Cannon Fodder, Speedball 2, all these like amazing games which had just like, they were a massive evolution from what had happened on the Commodore 64 and even the Atari, if you go back a little bit more, but were just like amazing. They they were games that had music and video and characters and half-decent graphics. And some of them came on like 12 discs. Like I think Monkey Island 2 was like 12 discs or UFO (laughs) Enemy Unknown, which was known as UFO, I think uh, UFO Defense over here maybe, XCOM Enemy Unknown, came on like 15 discs. So it it wasn't the best computer in terms of performance. I think it had one megabyte of RAM and you could upgrade like to two megabytes of RAM for like 120 pounds or whatever I was using back then. And then a lot of PC stuff came over. So the first game I ever completed and the first game I loved more than anything was um, The Secret of Monkey Island, mm. uh, which I played on, on the Amiga. That was only four discs. That wasn't so bad. <laughs> um, yeah, and Desert Strike and uh, Turrican, loads of games. Oh, the, yeah. the, the great thing about the Amiga, which also is the reason why it's not around anymore, is that you could very easily copy discs. Um, so everyone who owned an Amiga, if they had a friend who owned an Amiga and they had a friend who owned an Amiga, everyone had this massive library of, you know, VHS tapes, basically, right? Just like discs with like names scrawled on them for again. And then that, that game name gets crossed out because then this other one's there. It's like SimCity disc two, but it's crossed out and it says Mortal Kombat two disc three. Um, <laughs> so everyone had these huge libraries of games, which was rad because like mm-hmm. games is an expensive pastime, especially when you're a kid you have to be so careful about what you buy and you're not very good at buying things because you're a dumb kid so you end up <laughs> spending 30 bucks on this piece of trash that everyone knows is terrible but with the Amiga you just got whatever you wanted so wow. um, it was it was really cool well do you want to talk about some of your favorite music? sure um, one or two of them are from that era actually uh, good good because uh, yeah we should preface with the fact that you're a patron so, of Level with Emily, which is amazing, and we're grateful, and uh, you get to do Patron of the Week, so you get to rattle off some of your favorite stuff. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I, I absolutely love the work you do, and I love this type, like, like what I said earlier, I love that we can have this type of media, because mm-hmm. we haven't for a long, uh, we, we haven't been able to for a long time, especially yeah. when it's produced at such a high quality like you like you manage to do every every time, so... Um, yeah, I, I love it. So I'm, I'm proud to, to, to be a sponsor or <laughs> patron of, of, of the work. Um, so, yeah, should I start from the earliest one, maybe? Yeah, chronologically? Sure. sure, go um, for it. I have the first one I have in here is is the secret of Monkey Island's like theme music, and it's the Amiga version of the theme music. Because of course, Monkey Island came out on so many platforms, came out on loads of older ones, came out on PC. It's also been like redone on a million different consoles and HD remakes, and they've re- redone the music, and it's been amazing. Mm-hmm. But there's something about I don't have the vocabulary for it, but there's something about the the chipset that's in the Amiga, which is incredible. The sound on that console is leaps and bounds above I think anything that was happening at that time in fact my, my uh, buddy Jeremy who who films and colors all the no clip stuff 
he found a video of some guy who still like writes music and produces music through an Amiga like 1200, I think it is, because it create it's like as a synthesizer, basically, because it has this incredibly tight and layered musicality to it. Because like, you remember like back then, like all the, most of the audio we got was just like plinky plonky MIDI stuff, which was very flat and like didn't have much sort of depth to it whatsoever. Yeah. Whereas the Amiga had like, I mean, the, the music on this one, like, I can like hear it in my head right now. It's got like this crazy bass playing alongside of it. It has like sounds that almost sound like um, like you're hitting skulls, like using skulls as drums. It just sounded so layered and it sounded like it was actually happening there. What I love about it is that for me playing games back then, I grew up in what feels like the starting zone of a video game. Ireland is a, is not a large country. It's kind of, now it's got good infrastructure so you can actually get across it really, really fast. But it kind of felt like you're living in the middle of the Shire or something where like it takes ages to get anywhere. Everyone's the same. Everyone knows each other. It's all very happy and fun and whatever. But it's so ubiquitous, or culture is so sort of like static that we pull in from other places as much as we can. So we pull television in from the UK and we pull movies and music and stuff in from the United States as well. So we were just sucking in as much English speaking culture as we could possibly muster because we're one of the smallest English speaking landmasses in the world. Wow. So to me, playing games, games were like this amazing and i think this is probably the case for everyone regardless of where they grew up but it was this amazing portal into other into other worlds sure and monkey island when you start that game you know i didn't know where it was set i didn't know it could have been in the caribbean it could have been in by off the coast the subcontinent could have been in, i didn't know where it was <laughs> but just this the sound when you when you start that game and there's the lookout on the island and then that music kicks in it just gives it such an incredible sense of place and i think the reason why i love that game apart from the hilarious humor was the sense of place that you get there and that music right from the off just sets you up Wonderful, wonderful music. I, of course, never played the game. That was out of my era. But, um, but That's how it happens, though, right? We've yep. all got, like, don't talk to me about Mario. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a games journalist, apparently, who has literally never completed. I think I might have got Sunshine and Galaxy, I think, might have been the only ones. I, n none of those original Marios. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to tell you a thing about them. <laughs> well, what else is on your list? Uh, Alien Breed 2, which <laughs> I talk, I talk, this is a really weird one. Alien Breed is like essentially copyright infringement on Ridley Scott's uh, Alien franchise, <laughs> the video game. It was a top down, like kind of shmup thing. And I've never, I don't think I've ever played the full game, but I had a demo disc for Alien Breed 2. 
and it had the uh, the title screen on it, which has become sort of infamous for for any Amiga owner. There was a couple of games that were super scary. Shadow of the Beast, which was again essentially a, a knockoff of of a way better Mega Drive game <laughs> uh, called Altered Beast. But that was a, like really scary, gothic, weird game. And Alien Breed Two was the same thing. It had this like terrifying um, alien vis- visage on the on the title screen, and it had this like absolutely amazing title music which almost had no place in the game like it seemed super <laughs> anachronistic to everything else that was happening in the game it's this like i love dance music and i grew up listening to like left field and future sounds of london and moby and like all that my brother was six years older than me and was in college in the you know late 90s so so mm-hmm. all that so like house music trance all that was like my house was full of that stuff cream fields all that so <laughs> this type of music was like I just absolutely adored it. And I just send it to people because I'm like, do you know how good the music, like the sound card was or the sound chip was on the Amiga? Listen to this nonsense. just like it's such a weird soundscape it's like half brooding techno like blade runner thing and then it turns into this crazy like i don't even know what you call it it's just like this it's such a weird so what i do essentially was i take that disc and i just put it in and i just listen to the i never i wouldn't play the game half the time because it was too hard so i just i just listen to this go play over and over and over and over again and i still do i I load up the youtube video and i just let the credits roll and listen to it I have to have something from Yuzo Koshiro because he's just one of the most influential music uh, uh, musicians of that era or synthesizers or whatever you want to call it. Um, he was uh, a Japanese um, uh, musician who made games for, you know, just dozens and dozens of games, continues to make them. The one that a lot of people remind, uh, know him from is Streets of Rage 2, which he, he, he composed. Uh, I think he also might have programmed some of that game as well. And it's it's a very uh, sort of infamous soundtrack with with people who grew up playing Genesis and or in my case Mega Drive games, um, but I actually am a way more of a fan of the original Streets of Rage soundtrack. And again, this, I have it on vinyl. It's one of the wonderful ones that has been, what a wonderful era we live in where so much video game vinyl is being being created now. Yeah. It's it's also an incredibly expensive pastime to have. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I am 8-bit, keep making stuff. Um, although I think this one was done by someone else. It might've been data discs or someone else, I forget. But anyway, uh, Fighting in the Streets is my favorite track on Streets of Rage 1. Again, it's just like, it has, it seems to have no right to be played on like a little 16-bit console. This song is just like the most, again, it just hypes me up. It's the most like, if there were lyrics to this song, it would be 
you are going to go and beat up a bunch of dudes having a great time <laughs> with your friends. It's just like, again, seems weirdly anachronistic to what's actually happening on screen, which is that you're assaulting people in the street. But it's just, it's such a good time feel. And like that whole soundtrack, there's another one where you're like, there's a level on the beach where they're playing music, which could have been, you know, could be in like a Miami party. Like, it's just like party music. You're like, yeah! And you're like running down the beach, beating up people who are coming at you with knives. It's just... <laughs> That's why these games were, I think, kids, you know, we all loved them so much because it's just like, this is great, we're having fun. And then when your parents walked in and it's like, what's going on? You're beating this person with like a metal bar. That's not okay. <laughs> so yeah, the Streets of Rage 1 and 2 soundtracks are amazing, but my personal preference is for the first one um, and that song in particular. All right, next. Jasper Kids, uh, Jasper Kids, he probably comes up a lot. I'm guessing on he, uh, occasionally. Yes, he does. Yeah, deserves uh, my favorite. Right, totally prolific and and very talented. And also uh, the the amount of music that he is tasked at making for these games is is pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. The one that stands out for me is Assassin's Creed Two, uh, and specifically the Tour of Venice. that beautiful like there's something about the music in these games which is whenever i always feel like with orchestral music you can so easily fall into any number of tropey like plot hole like tropes essentially yep and i and i think with video game music as well it can be it's a really difficult thing to like take take your world and your narrative and the game and everything seriously without taking it too seriously mm -hmm. and i think a lot of games in their music do fall into that trap of, of just being a little bit too uh self like gladiator or something yeah. and not being but for whatever reason whenever jesper creates his soundscapes it always actually gives so much back to the game like it gives yeah. the game this breath uh, this i keep saying the word depth but again depth there's like almost credibility and this like it gives it a sense of universe or something, which I think is super important in open world games. And what I love about this track is not only that it has this like, it's like so sincere. Everything about the song is a bit, is like trying to get you to fall in love with the streets you're walking around. It's just, it's unfiltered like beauty poured into, into a soundscape. And then it has this, I'm, I'm a big fan of, um, uh, like, I love dance music and all that sort of stuff, but I also was in choirs my whole life, and I love classical music, and I love particular opera I really like, but I really love Maria Callas, and I love female sopranos and dramatic sopranos and things like that. Mm -hmm. And there's this, uh, there's, a, there's a female vocal that's on this, which is, I think, maybe the most beautiful voice I've ever heard in a video game.
it's like this ethereal quality to it and she's just singing in the background it doesn't overwhelm it or anything and it's only part of it for a bit and it's definitely part of the sort of musical um, element that's happening it's not just standing out on its own and she's not singing anything she's literally just like um, uh, reaching for pitch or whatever and <laughs> it's absolutely just beautiful and I was recently in Italy for the first time um, in my life last year and I listened to the Assassin's Creed soundtrack while I was going on my runs and uh, in the morning yeah and it was <laughs> one of the most like beautiful experiences I've ever had just like running around and I was listening to some of this and granted I wasn't in Venice I was in Rome <laughs> but it was just uh it was beautiful and it it it, it was really strange like it, it was one of the most powerful like experiences I've had enjoying music out out and about in the world where I felt like I was there again because I was listening mm. to the soundscape and seeing all these um iconic uh, buildings and streets that I'd seen from the games a lot of people love those games for a lot of reasons but I think without the soundtrack that game is is much lesser of an experience So was AC2 your favorite to play, or is it just one of your favorite soundtracks? I think Brotherhood might be my favorite to play. Mine too! Um, Brotherhood's the best! Because it had all the good stuff that that 2 was in, and then you also had, like, Ezio, you had a relationship with Ezio, and he'd grown in a way, which, yeah, that whole... um, Revelation was fun too, I guess, but, like, I think Brotherhood is, yeah... God, like, what an affecting story. Like, everything... So good, like... They yeah. did what GTA did for years, which is create believable open worlds. But they did it, and they went places that we couldn't go anymore. And, right. and created like I remember playing that original game, and my father coming upstairs, and I was I was walking around either Damascus or, or Jerusalem or Accra, I, I can't remember. And <laughs> him, like he's a he'd been to the Holy Land and, and uh, is a you know st- still Catholic, and would, he never watched me play games, but he sat there and watched me play it. He just thought this is like. It's wow. beautiful and it reminds me of it and it's it's almost like time traveling. Um, and I think yeah. those games were, were so good at that. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Very, very much. Well, speaking of GTA. Oh, yeah. God, I set myself up. I didn't even realize. You did. It was beautifully yeah. done. Weirdly enough, I listened to this again yesterday because my wife started playing GTA V. Uh, so I got to hear this music because it is the first thing that you see when you play the game. There's still footage of me somewhere. On the day GTA 5 came out, I ran down to Oxford Street in London, got a copy of the game, took a cab back to the GameSpot UK offices, and I played it for 12 hours straight (laughs) on a a live stream. Um, I adore GTA. I love all of the Grand Theft Autos. People have a weird thing about Rockstar, and I do think that there are issues in that game in terms of in terms of characterization and representation, which which certainly uh, I think have probably only gotten worse with time. But mm-hmm. I think that the ways in which the worlds that they create and the mechanisms therein are mm-hmm. nothing—it's like as close to magic as I have ever seen video games create. I just—it's—I was playing, watching my wife play yesterday, and I was going to the top of a mountain and looking at the lights. 
at nighttime over Los Santos and seeing them flicker. And I know because I've read developer diaries about um, the fact that all those light sources are real and the they are based on cars and based on buildings and stuff like that. And seeing that in the haze, like to me as somebody who was moving to California while this game came out, this game had an incredibly important, I think, piece of, uh, or, or was an incredibly important part of my life then, especially. I'm a big fan of the game. I was really excited about America. I kind of knew America through games. I knew it through, like, you know, playing games like Tony Hawk and playing games like Grand Theft Auto even, which is weird because they're made in Scotland uh, mostly. <laughs> um, but I, th- I think those games have this, they see America through, like, European eyes. Mm-hmm. They see the things that make America pop for people who aren't American, like yeah. in the way in which yellow school buses to European are the most American thing in the world. <laughs> Even though to Americans, they're just school buses. But to us, like we don't have yellow school buses. Yellow school buses is what, is what the Simpsons had. So <laughs> GTA is like that, but with everything, because they just they take culture and they take the whole thing. So to me, those games are really important that way. The soundtrack mm-hmm. for GTA V, a lot of it is done by Tangerine Dream, who are a particularly, uh, I like a lot of the individual artists who are on, who are part of Tangerine Dream, and I I, I like a lot of the work that, they, that they've done, and when I, I didn't realize that they actually done the soundtrack for GTA V. And when the music turned on, that song to me was just like, it sounds so incredibly unique. It's I've never heard anything like it in my life. It goes back into a lot of the themes I've talked about already about uh, female vocals and the sort of dance, digital, you know, electronic sort of music that I like as well. And the other thing that I guess the Streets of Rage sort of stuff does, which is like setting you up like, you're going to have fun here, it builds in this like, it starts off super subtle and it just builds and layers and layers and layers. And then by the end, when it reaches its peak, it's just like, it's, you're waiting, you're sitting, the loading screen for the start of that game, actually, when you first played that game, it installs the game, which takes probably longer than Metal Gear Solid uh, 4. It's like 15 minutes, maybe, for the game to install. So you're listening to the song <laughs> quite a lot. Yeah. But but it's like, it, it feels like the music, you know, that you listen to when you're in line for a Disneyland ride and you can't wait to get on that car and it's just <laughs> pumping you up. And it's just beautiful. Like, it's very unique and it's very, like, mishmashy and feels like what GTA is, which is like a clash of a bunch of different cultures and influences and musics and and, and media and, and writing and people and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But it also feels entirely unique, which I think Grand Theft Auto is as well. I love it. But it also definitely, in the same way as the Alien Re music, it touches on my preferences in a way that I don't fully understand and I'm also kind of okay not understanding it. be honest you asked about with dream lists as well yep. i would absolutely love to talk about the development of any of the grand of dodos or red dead i think the reason why we don't get access to them in particular which is a bit of a travesty is the fact that 
game reporting tends to, and I'm not like I don't think they're perfect. I think they've made they've done a bunch of stuff in their games which which works, and other stuff that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. They've also had issues with like the Team Bondi stuff that happened, and and the XYZ, and people talk about crunch and whatnot. I'm not saying they're the they're most ideal people in the world, but I do think that they make some of the most amazing games, and that game reporting has kind of shot itself in the foot in that we don't ever get access to even a tiny amount of that knowledge or insight yeah. because people are so. Um, yeah, there's because headlines also, you know, sell. You know, as much as much as I like people diving into stories and telling, telling the truth uh, when things are should be told and highlighting the truth, mm-hmm. that that truth also exists alongside the fact that headlines get hits and Rockstar is a particularly uh, easy thing to click on, um, or GTA yeah. is or any, anything like that. And that's the other thing, you know, you you have been able to get access to some really amazing places. Square Enix, for instance. Right. So, um, you know, not to jerk us back into into this part, but uh, it seems appropriate to ask, um, how does that work for you? Because I know what my struggles are like, but they're a, it's a complete. I'm not going for like the person who owns the company or any of that. Right. You know. Yeah, it's it's really weird. I think it's different for every company. I'm really honest about what we're going to do, and I I kind of. I, I don't I think number one when they when they can literally go and watch one of the documentaries they kind of do get a sense of the whole thing sure um, which definitely helps I'm really honest and open but I'm also very direct about stuff like I'm like we can do this I'd love to do this but we're really going to have to talk about X like we can't do this unless we talk about X so if we can work together to get us to a place where you're comfortable talking about X, then we can do it. And if we can't, then we can't. And that's okay too. So that's how we end up talking to the CEO of Square Enix, for instance, about the biggest commercial fuck-up they've ever had. Uh, you know, publicly, which is really funny because people forever told us the Japanese companies won't talk to us. So it's great that you're doing all this stuff in the West, but wait till you go to Japan. And then we go and we're interviewing the CEO of a public traded company and it's literally me and Jeremy and then 15 other people in the room making sure that nothing yep. wrong is said, wow. which was really weird. And then, like with with Bethesda and with with Doom, when we did Doom, like we showed the only ever footage of Doom Four, and it was just like an open conversation. And like a lot of credit actually goes um, to. I used to have a very antagonistic relationship with marketing and PR people, mostly because I fe- I felt like they were in the way of me getting a story. And while I think that that is often still the case, and definitely part of any conversation you have, that your your goals don't necessarily align all the time. I do think that especially with this type of work where it's more looking back that they're actually really interested in getting the real version of the story out. Like there are people who mm-hmm. essentially deflect, like run interference on knowledge their entire career. But at a certain point, that knowledge is okay to go out again. And they actually really want that stuff to get out. Like they're happy with the rough and tumble parts of the stories getting out there. It, and in a way, they actually know more about it than anyone else on the team because they're the sort of the last protection between that and, mm-hmm. and the general public. Mm-hmm. So I think I've also like would love to give a lot of credit to a lot of people who work for, for a lot of these companies for helping that happen. The Final Fantasy stuff, the Doom stuff, um, the Rocket League stuff, none of that would have happened without people advocating for Noclip on the inside and working with us to sort of figure out a way of telling the story, again, without it being marketing, which is this you know, essential part of this thing. Like At no stage do we take any financial... You know, we pay for our own flights, we pay for our own accommodation. Sometimes they buy us lunch. It can't really help that one. But, like, <laughs> we don't take any financial aid. And we also don't let them, they don't, like, check 
uh, the the docs before they go out. Like we have final say on everything. It's it's reporting after all. So yeah, it's been it's been great. I'm actually really really surprised, Emily, that people have been so open and honest about it. Mm-hmm. I think they kind of believe in what the mission is, and I think they want to believe that we're going to do it right. And hopefully, we've we've shown that we can we can at least try. Well, I think your you know your reputation is becoming more and more solid because you do do such a nice job, and I think that your work speaks for itself in that way. And you know, as you said, give people a chance to see it, then they kind of understand what to expect and what your goal is, you know, and your goal really Mm. is to tell the story, not to, you know, sensationalize or anything, just tell the story. Yeah, Yeah. that's very kind of you to say. I think authenticity is something that's sort of, I feel like when I worked in the games press that it wasn't necessarily the most important thing. Yeah, (laughs) Like having something be exciting was the important thing. Mm -hmm. And while I do think you can make things exciting, I think you can make things exciting without sacrificing the truth of what happened and that's kind of I feel like maybe where no clip sits where mm-hmm. you know again audio is hard to do video you can just put up some cool motion graphics and suddenly everyone's into it <laughs> <laughs> or music music plays a really big part in our documentaries actually we we uh, hire independent musicians we use stuff like audio network to to obviously get licensed music too but mm-hmm. people in our community have written music in fact jeremy who is my colorist and, and, yeah. and camera op uh um he's adac music you can check out his music on soundcloud he makes oh, a bunch cool. of music in his spare time most of the time he, he when he's not working for Mo- no clip he's he's at home working on his moog so <laughs> he made a bunch of music the rocket league music was was basically all done by him oh nice uh, in, that, in that doc so well, i'm gonna have to yeah, watch yeah. it again yeah, it's cool stuff. He's 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 a very talented individual. Nice, nice. Uh, you said something in one of your emails too that I wanted to ask you about. Sure. Because um, you said something about interviewing people as an outsider, and what what did you mean by that? Interviewing people as an outsider, as in outside people as you outside s- of the the industry. I don't know what you see. You, here, here. It's at the bottom of this. Um, you just sent it oh, to yeah. me today. It says also happy to talk about the work interviewing audio people as an outsider. Ah, sorry. Yes. So I left out the word audio. That might have helped. So you interview people. I feel like from a place of understanding music in games and understanding the effect like you have that dialogue you have that sort of um knowledge right away when we started no clip was people was like talk about music do a music (laughs) documentary do things about music people love music and games and they love talking about it and they love hearing about it uh, as i'm sure you're you're no doubt aware so at the start people wanted us to do that so kind of what we did was we made sure that whenever we went somewhere if we could we would talk to somebody who was involved in the audio design or composing mm-hmm. uh, composition of that game so in the rocket league one we did we talked to mike alt in the uh, doom one we talked to mick gordon who made the incredible science, uh, music for doom so good right spelunky we talked to eric shirka uh, we talked to people as much as humanly possible and um same with the witcher as well um with uh, uh, Marcin Pisevivovic, Pish- which is yes. one of the very, very difficult Polish names I've had to learn how to say <laughs> yes. over the past uh, couple of weeks. He's the so greatest. He's amazing. He's brilliant. And like all these people are, I feel like, are really good at communicating what it is they do because I feel like whenever they have a conversation with somebody, who isn't it's it's usually not somebody who has a vocabulary of music. So they're all very good at like breaking down what their thing is to some to a lay person essentially, right? Sure, sure. So to me that's what I mean by talking to people as an audio outsider is that I have 
you know, I talk to everyone as an outsider. I, I certainly talk to game developers. I'm not a game developer. I'm not designers. I'm not a designer, programmer, mm-hmm. I'm not artist. I do none of these things. If you yeah. talk to a video person, we probably have, you know, a bit of common ground. But generally, talking to audio people as an outsider is, uh, it's been incredibly interesting to sort of learn the reasons why they they made the creative decisions they did or like how it happened mm-hmm. or how the world of music in terms of its market has has uh, pushed musicians in certain directions especially with the Rocket League stuff where he was making that music privately and now he's pulling it into the games and it's blowing up all his private music stuff and the, the songs are like about things as well <laughs> they're about like relationships and yeah. like they're not they're not songs about playing <laughs> soccer with cars right. <laughs> And like talking to um, uh, Marcin Przebiewicz about all the weird instruments they used, like the hurdy gurdy, and like yeah. all these Slavic, strange mm-hmm. amalgams that they've made, or like old Middle Ages instruments, which nobody knows what they looked or sound like. So they're all based on, you know, stuff that was written down about them. And then people have remade these instruments. And like, I think it kind of sounds like this. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> So many interesting soundscapes out there. It's it's really cool. People ask us all the time to do like the music documentary. I actually think it's way more interesting to let every individual project kind of speak for itself a little bit. Sure. Um, at least that's the way it's worked for us so far. And that's the way, same way you do it, right? Where you just because then you get to deep dive. Then you get to talk all about all the nitty gritty and not just have a sort of a um, surface level conversation about the thing broadly. Right. And that, what I hope is that more people see the things that we're doing and then feel like they can also do it as well. Yeah. Um, I've seen a bunch of like other um, channels pop up. A lot of the bigger sites have now started putting more time into doing long form uh, reporting as well. And and I think ultimately, you know, the more reporting of this nature that we can do, the better it is for the consumer and the viewer. And I think that's like ultimately that's the most important thing. If if no clip shelved after a couple of years, I'll work really hard to make sure it doesn't and we're sustainable. But if if it did, like I all I want is for this stuff to be like a time capsule that like twenty years from now, if you know so somebody wants to learn about this old game, which ended up being like the progenitor of their favorite game, which came out in twenty thirty something. That they can go back and watch that, and that it maybe it's translated into their language, or maybe you know it's got subtitles if they can't they can they can't hear it um, too good, like anything like that. Like just to make it a, these stories as accessible as possible, and the more people are doing it, the better. Mm-hmm. Well, Danny O'Dwyer, what a pleasure to talk with you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. It's always weird being on podcasts you listen to. <laughs> It also means that it ruins the next podcast for you because you can't listen to it. So (laughs) I look forward to the one after this. Okay, fair enough. Thanks for listening to episode 86 of Level with Emily Reese. Check out Danny on Patreon at Danny O'Dwyer, which is, you know, Danny and then O-D-W-Y-E-R. 
and we're at patreon.com slash level. You'll find a playlist there, too. Hey, patrons. Composer Brad Gentle has offered a bunch of download codes for his soundtrack to the co-op puzzler Death Squared. That's a game on Steam and all the consoles. And we'll send you a message in Patreon if you'd like to grab one. I highly recommend you do. And big thanks to Brad for his generosity. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Hi. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily. And learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services and composer Brad Gentle. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media Incorporated.